0: This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his conclusion of this exciting study through the whole Bible.
1: Well, we are now in hour 24 of our Learn the Bible in 24-hour project, which is basically just an opportunity to come to some conclusions, take a broad review of what we've covered over the last 23 sessions. We obviously have gone through the entire Old Testament, starting with the Torah, then through the historical books, the poetical books, major and minor prophets. As we did, we tried to develop a broad perspective on the one hand, and yet I tried as we went along to pick up a few of the details. The truth is in the details. You may recall, we noted that if you take every 49th letter in the book of Genesis, it spells the the name Torah, interestingly enough. If you do the same thing in Exodus, the first Tau, first Vav, first Resh, every 49 letters again spells Torah. In Leviticus it doesn't happen, in Numbers of course it does, but backwards of all things. Same thing with Deuteronomy, have the equivalent kind of thing occur. And this is a mystery. Why on earth is this here? Is this by accident? I don't think so. Is it by design? I guess so, but what does it prove? Well, Leviticus, let's take another look at Leviticus. We discover that every seventh letter, not seven squared, but every seventh letter spells out the, the unpronounceable name of God, which the rabbis typically say Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh, or Yehovah, or people have different ways of rendering it, but basically the, the tetragamaton. Well now when we stand back from this design, we notice that Torah is spelled forward in the first two books and backwards in the last two books. In Leviticus it it, it highlights the fact that the Torah always points to the name of God. Now this is not a big deal, except it's it's a flag to alert us to the fact that underneath the text is design. And these designs are in some cases very profound. We'll touch on a few of those. Very early in our review, we talked about the nature of time, and we got into the physics of that. But the main point of it is is that in our 20th century science heritage, we now know that time is a physical property. It varies with mass acceleration and gravity, among other things. And that means that we exist in more than three dimensions. In fact, the physicists now tell us probably ten dimensions. But the main point is, is that God uses His ability to be outside time altogether to validate His message to us. And if we we think of time as linear, we think of eternity as starting at infinity on the left going to infinity on the right, or putting that into our space, if you can visualize this curve as a three-dimensional space. We are in the present, behind us is the past, ahead of us is the future. For us, life is a sequence of events, but to someone who's outside time, in eternity, he can see the past, the present, and future simultaneously. And this is an attribute of God alone, but He he uses that to authenticate the message He sends us. He proves it that it's really from Him by writing history before it happens. We call that prophecy in one sense, but we find it also in subtle sense. Much of the Bible makes no sense except as history finally plays out. The brazen uh, uh, serpent is an example of that in Numbers 21 makes no sense until you get to John 3 and so forth. So, we also talked about the stretch factor of the universe as it's commonly thought of. Uh, Is the universe uh, 15, 16 billion years old, or was it created in 6 days? It turns out the expansion factor of 10 to the 12th, which is widely accepted, is in fact simply the same expansion factor uh, if you render it in terms of the mass. The mass of the earth versus the mass of the universe. You take that ratio, 6 times 10 to the 12th days, renders down to 6 days, if you will. Day one goes to uh, that's one rendering by Dr. Gerald Schroeder, but there's other considerations. The main point is, I believe, in a 6-day creation, literal days, because God intends us to understand that from, not from Genesis, but from Exodus 20, verse 11. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about information measures, the difference between order and disorder, noise and signal, cacophony, music, and chaos and cause. These are opposites. On the left we have disorder. We have entropy, which is a way of saying randomness. And on the right we have information. And they're opposites to each other, in a sense. So they are different. And things are always flowing towards randomness. The universe is winding down. It takes external input to create order or information, and that speaks to a creation, a definitive creation. Uh, the Darwinists cannot explain the origin of life because they can't explain the origin of information. That's really the issue, not the biology of it. We, ma- we made a mentro- uh, an entropy profile of the universe Randomness is at the bottom, orders at the top in this little diagram. The word Erev speaks of obscurity or disorder, and the word Boker, being orderly or discernible, they ultimately come to mean evening and morning. But what we really have is Erev and Boker defining the first day of creation, and light was created and so forth. And then we went to the second day, Erev and Boker, and we had properties of space emerge. And uh, then we had uh, the land and vegetation. And the fourth day, we had the sun and the moon and the stars. And then we had the birds and the fish and so forth. And then we finally had, in the sixth day, animals, Mr. and Mrs. Man, and so forth. What's provocative about this, of course, is in the seventh day, there is no and Boker. There's obviously an evening and morning, but the point is that the, the reduction of entropy, the, the insertion of structure and design, had ceased. It was completed at the end of the sixth day. And so the Scripture tells us. But then we get to a huge discontinuity, the fall of man in chapter 3, in which we have a decay. We have a, a huge disruption of the original creation. Everything we know about the universe is post-curse, as God uh, uh, declares war on Satan for his exploits here. That starts the scarlet thread. God promises that He would redeem the world through the seed of the woman. It's a hint of the, of the virgin birth. It's going to come from mankind. It's going to be a man to do this. In fact, from a specific nation that Abraham is called to do. Jacob, the tribe, and David, the family, and so forth. And so the, as, as the scripture goes, it sequentially focuses on God's plan of redemption. And as he focuses, Satan tries to disrupt it. We even took a look at the proper names in the genealogy of Genesis 5 and discovered interestingly enough that there's a, a sentence, Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that His death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah are built from Hebrew roots. And man has appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death, whose death? God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Praise God. So here we have a summary of the Christian gospel tucked away in a genealogy in the Torah, astonishingly enough. Well, of course, we got into the fallen angels and the Nephilim and all of that. We talked about Noah's Ark and the realities of it. Um, Its displacement being uh, equivalent to at least 500, maybe twice that railroad cars. Equivalent space for 125,000 sheep when you've got only about 18,000 species to deal with. It It sounds quite much more comfortable than it does on the face of it. We also covered the reasons why we don't think that Mount Ararat in Turkey is a viable site for the ark. It violates what the scripture would tend to argue that they came from the east to Babel, which means that somewhere the ark, the real Mount Ararat is probably in Iran somewhere, and we will not be surprised if some of the uh, attempts to find it will surface in the coming years. But then we, of course, talked about the call of Abraham and his family how he married his half-sister, had uh, Ishmael as well as Isaac, how, uh, as the family grows and so forth, these relationships are important. He has a nephew by the name of Lot that becomes very prominent in Genesis. We talked about that. Under Bethuel, we had Rebekah who becomes the bride of Isaac, from whom we have Esau and Jacob, Esau being the forebearer of the Edomites, the enemies of Israel. Some of these tensions we see in the world today have their roots way back in the Genesis time period. And, of course, also to Bethuel, in addition to Rep- Rebekah, you had Laban. And Laban has uh, Leah and Rachel, two daughters that marry into Jacob. So we have, the, you know, the whole scenario of uh, the patriarchs start to lay out in the book of Genesis that we went through. Under the patriarchs, we uh, took some time to really understand Abram, who had a Ishmael through Hagar, not Sarah. Under Sarah, we had Isaac who marries Rebecca and has, uh, again, Jacob. And again, we have the, the key line, from which come the twelve tribes. Not only through Leah and Rachel. Leah has the four. And then uh, Rachel gives her handmaid to have two more, Dan and Naphtali. And then uh, Leah figures, that's a good idea. I'll do the same thing with Zilpah. So there's a couple there. And by this time, uh, Rachel finally has a child, Joseph. And then uh, Leah has two more. And then finally, Rachel has a has Benjamin, but dies in childbirth. But the Rachel is the one Jacob loved Rachel more than life itself, and so uh, obviously Joseph was very favored. And Joseph becomes the prime minister of the world through the incredible drama that finishes the last few chapters of the Book of Genesis. He has two sons that get adopted by Jacob as he adopts his grandsons, as we would call them. So you have 13 potential tribes. So you can always have 12 by dropping, if you have to drop one out. That relieves a lot of the confusion that comes later. As for the other descendants of Abraham, under Esau, who marries into, uh, marries with the sons of Ishmael. But it's interesting that the ones that are truly Arabs are really sons of Keturah, not even Hagar, as well as Sarah. Uh, certainly not Sarah, not, but not even Hagar, interestingly enough. They really come from Keturah. From Jackson, we have Saudi Arabia. And from Midian, we have the Bedouins and such. So the whole issue of Arabs is an issue. Something else, getting back to some of the subtleties we pointed out as we went through, we noticed that in 49 letter intervals, we have a very interesting genealogy tucked away in Genesis 38. We have Boaz in 49 letter intervals. Then we have Ruth in 49 letter intervals. And then we have uh, Obed in 49 letter intervals. And then we have, uh, Isha or Jesse in 49 letter intervals, and then we have David in 49 letter intervals. What's astonishing about this, this is Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David in chronological order, centuries before the fact. This is in the book of Genesis. This is long before Moses and all of that. I mention this. Not that it's a big deal, except be aware of the fact that there are discoveries laying just beneath the surface of the text that highlight its supernatural origins. So the text anticipates the lineage of David several centuries in advance. David did not come as a surprise or an afterthought. That was God's plan from the beginning. So, anyway, we went through the Torah, the Book of Beginnings. We took the birth of the nation in Exodus. We looked at the Book of Holiness, the law of the nation, and then we talked about Numbers, their wanderings be due to a lack of faith. And then finally Moses' three epistles that make up the Book of Deuteronomy, his final, his final review and, and comments on the whole thing before he dies. Then we went through the historical books, Joshua and the conquest of Canaan, judges the next 300 years, where they really snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory, by not following through what Joshua had started. And then we have Ruth. This incredible little four-chapter book that really it reveals to us the role and background of the kinsman redeemer. Very essential when we get to the book of Revelation. Then we had First Samuel, the birth of the kingdom, and then for 2 Samuel, the reign of David himself. And then the kingdom divided under Solomon. And then the, the history of that divided kingdom. Chronicles is a review of both of those with special emphasis on David and the southern kingdom. But we have basically the monarchy there from 1 Samuel through to Chronicles, 1 Samuel being the bridge between the Judges and the, and the monarchy period. So we went through the whole background of history here with uh, Genesis covering a huge part of history from the creation all the way up to the Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament from there through the, the uh, monarchy period. Then the four centuries of what they call the silent period. And the New Testament is so different than the Old Testament, it, it occurs in just one lifetime. But boy, what a lifetime it is. And so we uh, have that perspective. The monarchy, of course, was uh, we went through that rather hurriedly, but the uh, best we could with the time. The, the Saul started with such promise, but ended in failure. We had David, who was the key to all things in many respects. And then Solomon, who started well, but again failed. It's interesting, you look at Saul or Solomon or many others, finishing well is the name of the game. And uh, so we have 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, sometimes called 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings in some Bibles. But in any case, uh, Elijah being in 1st Kings, Elisha in the 2nd Kings is at the breakpoint there. Chronicles being a repeat of 2nd Samuel through 2nd Kings, from the point of view primarily of the southern kingdom. We went through the prophets, the various prophets that uh, We also, as we went along and saw the building of the temple, we noted the differences between it and the tabernacle that are very profound. But the same basic architecture. But adding the elements of the porch, the the pillars, and the uh, hidden chambers. Many lessons out of this that we touched upon. And how the the basic tabernacle model, uh, the body, the soul, the heart, and the spirit, seem to be profiled. And seven times in the Scripture, God says, Ye are the temple of God. What does He mean by that? There are many lessons here that are well amplified by our little briefing called The Architecture of Man, but perhaps more profoundly by my wife's trilogy, The Way of Agape and the books that followed. And the fact that the porch is there is our willpower. very key issue. The, the subconscious being implied by these wooden chambers and so forth. Sounds strange at first encourage encourages you to study, review all that. But after the monarchy, we get to the historical books. Ezra, the return from captivity, from the Babylonian captivity. And Nehemiah, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And the scene of the fulfillment of the Daniel 70 weeks, or 69 of the 70 weeks. And uh, between Ezra and Nehemiah actually occur Esther, w- from which the, uh, fr- uh, the escape from being exterminated, very, very dramatic, dramatic story. We went through the poetical books, not too expositionally too much. We talked about Job, at least in the central points. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. The uh, the messianic details in the Psalms are astonishing. You don't think of the Psalms as a as a book of prophecy, but they really are. They're more than just the hymns. There's an enormous amount of details about Jesus. His person, that He's the Son of God, Son of Man, and Son of David is emphasized by many of them. His offices, prophet, priest, and king, are emphasized by many of them. But His messianic profile is astonishing. That he'd speak in parables. He'd calm storms. He'd be despised, rejected, mocked, whipped, derided. He would be impaled on a cross. He'd be thirsty, given wine mixed with gall, lots cast for His garments. Not a bone would be broken. All these are detailed in the Psalms. With astonishing precision. He'd rise from the dead. He'd ascend to heaven. He'd be at the right hand of God. He's the high priest. He'll judge the nations. His reign would be eternal as the son of God and also the son of David. People would sing Hosanna to him, blessed forever, and would come into glory in the last days. All this is laid there. The coming of his kingdom is mentioned in Psalm 46 through tribulation, the range of His kingdom, all the earth in Psalm 47, the center of His kingdom, Psalm 48. So 46, 47, 48 are a trilogy on the coming range and center of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. Then we got to the major prophets and what rich material. We spent a whole session just on Isaiah, the Messianic prophet, and then we tried to get most of the others. We spent a special time on Daniel also, because he's half history and half prophets. 12 key points in Isaiah. That uh, he, just Isaiah 53, he comes in absolute loneliness. he was despised, rejected of men, he suffered for sins in the place of ourselves, that God himself caused the suffering to be vicarious. All these are descriptions, not from Paul's epistles, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. His absolute resignation, he opened not his mouth. The description there is astonishing, as 53. he died as a felon from prison and from judgment. He was cut off prematurely, out of the land of the living. He was personally guiltless, no violence nor seat in his mouth. He was, to live after, he was to live on after His sufferings. He prolonged His days. Jehovah's pleasure would prosper in His hand and so forth. The mighty would triumph after His suffering. But all this God would justify many, the Scripture says. All this is in the Old Testament centuries before. Isaiah 53. And hidden behind the text, within those 12 verses, are the names of the people that are at the foot of the cross. You've got Pharisee, Levites, Caiaphas, Annas, the man, Herod, and so forth. All kinds of uh, words that are relevant, but perhaps most astonishing, the disciples that were mourning. Peter, Matthew, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas. Two Jameses. Not three, because one was not a believer until after the resurrection. Simon, Thaddeus, Matthias. Three Marys are there, and one of them is entangled with the reference to John, and Salome, and Joseph. Just amazing. These are encrypted within 12 verses. The people of the cross. What's even more astonishing is a name that should occur statistically, just because of the frequency of the letters within that sequence of tests that is conspicuous in its absence, that's the name of Judas. Well, we got to Daniel. talked about Daniel, chapter 2, and and the, the strange metallic dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, but then also the series of visions that Daniel would have later in his life, and how they paralleled with each other, both of them profiling the history of Gentile dominion on the planet Earth, right up to the end, where it's interrupted by God's own kingdom being set up. And so we went through all of that. And of course we can't zip through even on a summary basis and talk about the book of Daniel even uh, without, or any part of the scripture without pointing out the 69 weeks. This incredible prophecy penned uh, five centuries in advance uh, that was translated into Greek three centuries in advance about, uh, that Gabriel tells Daniel the exact day that Jesus would present himself as a king to Jerusalem. Well, the commandment to restore Jerusalem to Messiah the king would be 69 weeks of years, and that turns out to be exactly right to the very day. And this is all in the Septuagint, penned, translated into Greek, three centuries before it happens. Gabriel's margin for error is zero. It works out when one takes the trouble to get into the precision to the very day. Getting to Ezekiel, there's all kinds of things in Ezekiel, but of course, perhaps most eminent on our horizon is the famous Magog invasion, which couldn't very well happen in, our near, in the near future. Magog and his allies are listed there. It's famous for two reasons. God will intervene on behalf of Israel, rather dramatically. And also it appears to describe the use of nuclear weapons. So it's, it's much studied among prophecy buffs today because it, there's an expectation by people in the strategic community that this could be on our near horizon. Each one of these is a study and that's right. Then we went to the so-called minor prophets, not because, not because they're less important, because they happen to be physically smaller. Major and minor are a librarian's categorization, not, not in significance. Hosea talks about the apostasy of the Northern Kingdom, and his book is an incredible indictment by parallelism with America. Because exactly the predicament of the Northern Kingdom is very parallel to America, and the remedy may be the same. Joel is a major source of information about the day of the Lord, the final climax forthcoming. Amos emphasized the ultimate rule of David. Obadiah talks about the enemies of Israel, the destruction of Edom. But you need to understand that the Edomites is generic for all of Israel's enemies. Always has been. And uh, they, they would celebrate any time Israel got put down. The word, as you, the more you study the Edomites and the ho- whole history, the more you recognize it becomes a synonym for Israel's enemies. And Obadiah has much to talk about that. Jonah, of course, is a led to the repentance of Nineveh. Incredible book and also very relevant to our day. Uh, Ten miracles in that book, but the most impressive one is not the fish thing. It's the repentance from the king on down within 40 days that averted judgment. Micah has many things in it, but we know it best probably because of the birth in Bethlehem and so forth. But it also identifies the source of the Antichrist and some other interesting things in Micah. Nahum was also from Galilee to Nineveh, but this this time Nineveh doesn't repent. In 722, they get they disappear from history. And it wasn't they weren't rediscovered in history until 1849, strangely enough. It, many people thought it was just a legend. Habakkuk has many interesting things, mainly about why does God use bad people to even to judge some of the people that aren't where they should be. In other words, He's, he's really troubled that, uh, that God will use uh, sometimes very evil people to accomplish His, his uh, judgments. But also in Habakkuk is this plea that the just shall live by faith, which becomes the watchword of the Reformation, and it's also the subject of a three three epistles as a trilogy on that subject. And that's why we believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians are a trilogy of that. Zephaniah has a number of little nuggets, but not the least of which it predicts that not only will Israel be regathered, but when they do, they'll speak pure Hebrew. And that sounded preposterous until May 14th of 1948, and obviously the Hebrew in Israel today is a uh, pure Hebrew. Haggai focuses on the frustrations in rebuilding the temple, and Zechariah has all kinds of nuggets about the second coming, so very timely stuff. And then Malachi is the final message to a disobedient people, but he also has a secret revealed in there that's that's the solution to all financial problems. As you go through the study of these, the the minor prophets, one of the things, we won't take the time to review in detail now, but to understand that the prophets are not in chronological order. As you study them, try to understand which prophet prophesied under which king. As you double back on these things and do your homework, try to relate them to the context in which they were prophesying. Haggai in the days of Ezra, and Zechariah in the days of Nehemiah, and of course Malachi at the very, very end. And the silent years are profiled for you in advance in Daniel 11. So that's the Old Testament. When you finish the Old Testament, the one thing you're hit with is that there are unexplained ceremonies left. Sacrificial rituals that are not explained. You have unachieved purposes. You have all these covenants. What for? Some conditional, some unconditional. You have unappeased longings. The poetical books are full of things they're yearning for that have yet to be fulfilled. And the prophecies, of course, are incomplete. It's important to really taste and appreciate the fact that the Old Testament is incomplete by itself. There's something missing. And what's missing, of course, is the New Testament. Jesus challenges you in John 5.39, He says, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And He's referring to the Old Testament to them when He's he's saying that. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of what? Me. That's His boast, and indeed they do. And when you discover that for yourself, it'll change your whole perspective.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact this station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.